Aloha and welcome to Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. My name is Stanley Chang, and I'm a state senator in Honolulu, Hawaii. Together with Faith Action for Community Equity, a grassroots interfaith nonprofit dedicated to addressing Hawaii's social justice challenges, we're here to understand housing more deeply and seek new, innovative solutions from all over the world to the severe housing crisis here. But many of the lessons may also apply to your community, wherever you may be. And now, on with the show. Good morning, and thank you to everyone for joining us. Our guest is Emily Hamilton, a research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. She's authored numerous academic articles and policy papers on urban economics and land use policy, including how land use and zoning regulations limit the supply of housing, leading to increased housing prices. She has written about why public housing is ineffective, why inclusionary zoning is counterproductive, and why rent control hinders housing construction. She's also written about nimbyism and gentrification. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, Emily, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in housing policy? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. I first got interested in housing policy when I was in college and fell into an internship in the city planning department of my hometown in Western Colorado. Uh, I, I took the internship mostly because I needed a summer job, not because I was particularly interested in um, the issue of city planning. But I quickly uh, got really interested in the work that the city planning department did. I started attending lots of planning commission meetings and getting really interested in the role that cities play um, in our lives, in our um, civic lives, and, and the economy as a whole. Great. And can you tell us a little bit more about George Mason University and the Mercatus Center in particular? Yeah, uh, the Mercatus Center is an economic policy research center based at George Mason in Northern Virginia. Uh, we work on all matters of, of economic policy, uh, but my particular work is in the Urbanity Project, which started about two and a half years ago. And our research focus is on housing affordability and the effect of land use regulations on housing markets and urban outcomes more broadly. So speaking of those land use regulations, um, you know, you've been an active researcher on the issue of zoning in particular, which is one way that many communities across this country, including Hawaii, use um, to regulate land use. And you've also advocated for states to force local governments to loosen their zoning by allowing multifamily homes in areas that are currently zoned for single family dwellings. Um, why do you feel that those decisions should be made at the state rather than the local level? Yeah, localities implement all types of, of different rules that limit the amount of housing that can be produced and the type of housing that can be uh, produced. So one that's gotten a lot of attention recently is single family zoning and detached single family zoning specifically. So this is when localities say that um, each new house has to sit on its own lot 
on a, a yard of a certain size. Um, so we can just extrapolate from there when, when localities are saying each house has to sit on a certain amount of land, they're in effect limiting the amount of houses that can be built in their jurisdiction and in turn, the number of households that can live in their jurisdiction. Um, and it's not just single family zoning that drives up housing costs and limits the amount of housing that can be built. Uh, it's also parking requirements, which either take up a lot of land or add a lot to construction costs. If these parking um, spots are built either below ground or in above ground garages, um, lot size requirements that sometimes require houses to sit on really large lots of some cases two to five acres for every single house. Um, and rules like historic preservation that seals a, a neighborhood that's been built out as it is and prevents it from accommodating more residents over time. And in many cases, um, these rules have benefits. People like their neighborhoods the way they are for lots of understandable reasons, but they also have costs uh, by limiting growth and driving up prices and reducing opportunities for people to live in the location of their choice. At the local level, those um, costs tend not to be given their due because local policymakers are very focused on keeping their, their current constituents happy. And they tend not to be concerned about the opinions of people who can't move into their jurisdiction because they can't afford it. So state policymakers have, um, have a role to play by stepping in to set limits on the extent to which localities can limit housing construction uh, and limit population growth in their jurisdictions um, and, and ultimately um, give property owners um, more rights to determine how um, their land should be developed and how they'd like to respond to, um, to market pressures with rising home prices and have the opportunity to build more housing as a result. So there are a lot of famous examples of jurisdictions with very little land use regulation. Houston is one example. Um, are there examples of jurisdictions that have gone from high regulations, such as Hawaii, to low regulation? That's a great question. Um, and, and you're right that, that most examples of localities that are, are pro-housing and pro-growth tend to have been that way, um, not necessarily have adopted uh, big reforms that made them pro-growth when they previously were not. Um, New Jersey is one example where a series of state Supreme Court decisions have, have led to some limits on localities' um, ability to restrict housing. That's called the Mount Laurel Doctrine. Um, and as a part of, of that decision, localities have been required to permit more um, below market rate housing as well as market rate housing than they would have been required to permit otherwise. Um, so that's one example. We um, also can look to the example of Oregon, which last year passed a state law 
requiring many localities across the state to allow duplexes and in some cases up to fourplexes to be built on land that they had previously zoned for exclusively single family. Um, and following that, that Oregon law, a few other states introduced similar bills that have so far not passed. Uh, but I think that it's, there's a good chance that we will see more activity at the state level um, that moves toward allowing um, more housing to be built. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those efforts? I know California has attempted to increase zoning density through vehicles like SB 50. Yes, yeah, the, the California approach um, is a little bit more complicated than the Oregon approach. It would have set limits on local zoning both across the entire state and specifically in locations that are well served by transit. Um, that bill has gotten a ton of attention. Um, so far has, has not passed, although I think there's a good chance we will um, see future iterations of that bill that, that might pass in the future. Um, California has um, successfully passed uh, several bills that make it easier for homeowners to build accessory dwelling units on, um, in their backyards or in their garages. So accessory dwelling units are uh, a second unit and in some cases in California, two accessory dwelling units are allowed to be built at a single family house. And they provide homeowners a way to earn additional income or provide a housing option for a family member um, that's either rented out or just, just given to them. Um, and also provide a relatively low cost housing option for people who rent those accessory dwelling units. And Los Angeles in particular has, has seen accessory dwelling units um, taking off quite a bit in the last couple of years and becoming an important portion of the new housing that's built there each year. So we've been talking a lot about the deregulatory aspect of land use, um, various jurisdictions and their efforts to make it easier to build. But as you know, um, in many jurisdictions, including Hawaii, governments have often taken the opposite approach, which is to add additional regulations in an attempt to increase affordable housing, notably inclusionary zoning. Can you tell us a little bit about what inclusionary zoning is and what your thoughts are on inclusionary zoning? Yeah, inclusionary zoning programs vary a lot across jurisdictions. But the general idea is that home builders are required to provide a certain percentage of below market rate new housing units as a component of um, new housing developments that also include market rate units. And oftentimes these uh, programs are paired with a density bonus. That means that developers who are participating in the inclusionary zoning program are allowed to build more total housing um, than they would have otherwise been allowed to build. So one example might be that a, um, a new apartment building under inclusionary zoning is going to be 100 units total. And the, the locality might say 10 of those units have to be priced below market rate. Uh, but you can um, now build 100 units 
under, um, without inclusionary zoning, you would have only been allowed to build 90. Um, and what I found studying inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore, Washington region is that jurisdictions that have adopted mandatory inclusionary zoning programs have experienced larger increases in their market rate house prices than they could have expected had they not adopted inclusionary zoning. So while these programs are providing a small number of below market rate um, housing units, which is, is fantastic for those households that are able to luck into those small number of units, um, the, the cost of these programs, I find, is that they're increasing housing unaffordability for everyone who doesn't get to benefit from the below market rate units that are produced. And inclusionary zoning um, relies on those density bonuses to not be a clear tax on housing construction. Um, and those density bonuses only have value because of the jurisdictions otherwise exclusionary zoning. So if a, a home builder can provide as much housing as they think will be profitable, the density bonus means nothing to them. It's worthless. So in order to make inclusionary zoning programs successful, that exclusionary zoning has to stay in place. So inclusionary zoning, in my opinion, can never be a cure for the problems of exclusionary zoning. So why would it be that these inclusionary zoning programs increase the cost of housing overall? Um, you know, if we picture a luxury condo development, for instance, and all of the units are going to be priced at a million dollars or more, and the city or the county goes in and requires that 10% of those units be priced for less than that, haven't we increased the amount of affordable housing and haven't we decreased the overall price that these units would be selling for? Yeah, so the, the programs do increase um, the amount of below market rate housing, but by requiring developers to provide those below market rate units at their own expense, these programs act as a tax on housing construction which is then passed on to all the home buyers or renters who don't um, themselves get to live in one of the below market rate units. So in an effort to make housing more affordable, inclusionary zoning programs are taxing housing construction, which is um, the exact thing that, that those of us who are concerned about housing affordability don't want to see taxed. So how would you describe a successful inclusionary zoning program? What conditions would be in place for you to say that that would be a good idea? Well, I think if, if um, below market rate units in an otherwise market rate building are worth having, they're worth paying for. Um, so these, these below market rate units should be supported with general tax funds um, and, and should be paid for um, by all taxpayers, not just um, born out of the cost of um, building new market rate housing. But wouldn't that be um, a huge burden for the taxpayers to pick up, especially when the housing shortages in jurisdictions like Hawaii and California um, are huge? Yes. Um, yeah, it, it would be a, an expensive 
program. And I think that's why inclusionary zoning is so popular across the country is because it um, is a, a way to provide below market rate housing that appears as if it doesn't have a um, tax on residents, but the evidence on inclusionary zoning shows that in many cases, it is a tax. It's just a, a sneaky tax um, on, on housing that doesn't look like one, um, as opposed to a clear budget outlay that, um, that can be evaluated by policymakers and voters. So um, if you were to create an entirely new city on undeveloped land and you had the opportunity to design a land use regulation system from scratch that would help keep homes as affordable as possible for as many people as possible, how would we go about that? Well, I certainly wouldn't impose any limits on residential density. Um, I think there are many benefits to living in a dense neighborhood um, from walkability to um, just getting to live really close to more different types of people and more different types of, um, of commercial development that has really been stamped out by typical U.S. zoning ordinances, but that many people value. Um, so we can look to some examples of locations that were built with essentially no top-down planning and no zoning rules, like um, Lower Manhattan, for example, which we can tell people love because it's an incredibly expensive place to live and lots of tourists visit that area every year just to get to enjoy um, walking around that type of development that was um, built before zoning rules started dictating what development looks like. Um, so I, I would um, look to those examples as a, a um, important model for what um, my um, ideal land use and housing policy looks like. I think there's absolutely a role for um, building codes that um, make buildings um, safe from, from fire or earthquake or other um, natural hazards that consumers have a difficult time evaluating for themselves. But things like this, the size of a unit um, should be left to um, home builders and consumers to decide how much they are willing to pay for and, and how much they value space over other types of amenities like proximity to um, offices or retail spots. Um, in those types of jurisdictions, or you know, even in general, what would you say to say a single-family homeowner who bought a home with a nice lawn in a suburb surrounded by other homes that look similar to that, and said, "Well, you know, I don't want a gas station or an office tower next to me. I bought this property specifically because I wanted." this particular lifestyle? Yeah, um, well, there's been a real change in how property rights are thought of in the US housing market over time. So at one point it was uh, a clear demarcation that you own your land and control what happens on that land, but your neighbor owns their land and, and gets to decide what happens on their land. Um, the, the pendulum has swung very, very far away from 
from that point to the, the spot we're in now, where many residents think that, that they should have a veto over any changes in their neighborhood. For those who, who really value a stable neighborhood that's, for example, going to be exclusively detached single family homes and is not going to change much at all over time, I think private deed restrictions are, are a good solution as long as those deed restrictions are written in a way that they can be overturned. Uh, and Houston is, is another example of where private deed restrictions play an important part of the housing market. Some of their neighborhoods are, uh, are walled off to denser development or commercial development by deed restrictions that limit um, development to exclusively single family. But if land prices in a Houston neighborhood rise enough so that homeowners, um, the majority of homeowners in a neighborhood are thinking, you know, I, I really like to um, be able to cash out and sell my house to a developer who's going to build um, denser housing or an apartment building here. Um, in that case, it, there will um, likely be enough support among residents to overturn those deed restrictions. So unlike zoning, um, which is determined by political pressures, deed restrictions uh, are also responsive to market pressures. So these are concepts that are kind of um, new to Hawaii. Certainly, we've never seen anything um, like that. As, as we've discussed, we have a very restrictive land use um, law regime here in Hawaii. Um, but there are jurisdictions, we already mentioned Oregon, um, Minneapolis would be another that have lifted some of these um, restrictions to allow, you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes in previously single family neighborhoods. What was the process, the political process that made that possible when, you know, so many other jurisdictions, including Hawaii, have had so many struggles with that? Yeah, the the Minneapolis example is really interesting because, as you say, it, it happened um, at the local level and was not the result of the state government um, coming in and requiring change. The local council members who led the effort um, to reform single family zoning in Minneapolis framed this effort as a way to address past wrongs of, of racist housing policy that shut out African Americans from being able to get housing finance for um, many decades in the United States and also um, enforced single family zoning as a way to discriminate based on income uh, and, and by race as a result. So this was framed as, a, a, um, as an opportunity to do a little bit better going forward, making Minneapolis a place that uh, can accommodate housing for more people and more people at a lower cost than it could previously. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see if that um, reform sticks. I, I hope that it will, um, but it's, it's really the first type of reform of its kind at the local level. Um, so the, the politi political implications will be interesting to follow. 
All right. And so let's swing the pendulum all the way on the other end from a Houston. And let's talk about some jurisdictions that have very heavy governmental intervention into the housing sector. And of course, one example is Singapore, where over 80% of residents live in government housing, public housing. Another example would be Vienna, where 62% of the population lives in government built social housing. Um, you've been um, an opponent of public housing expansion in the past. Um, and yet we have these models that seem to be working in those cities. Why do you think that public housing would not be an appropriate solution in this country? Well, in, in Singapore, government-owned land um, has done an impressive job of, of limiting NIMBYism. That's really not a factor um, when a public agency is determining how much housing is going to be built and where. Um, but the U.S. has had a much, much worse experience with public housing, um, although certainly a different model of public housing. If we look at New York City, which has um, by far the most public housing today of any U.S. city, it's not just that the public housing there is, um, is poorly run and um, produces bad outcomes for its residents. It's also that it's very expensive. So New York City public housing units um, are more expensive in terms of both capital expenditures and operating costs than um, market rate housing in New York is. Um, so when um, public housing supporters in the US um, say that, that all the problems of public housing here are due to disinvestment. That's not true in all cases. Um, it's, it's a combination of, um, of, of poor incentives at the um, government level to um, produce good outcomes that have caused the city to experience both high costs and poor outcomes for residents of that housing. Um, all right. Well, that's the we've covered a, a huge amount of ground, kind of the whole spectrum of land use regulation regimes from very unrestricted like Houston to very restrictive. Um, and we have a number of great questions from our audience today. Um, let's start with um, one from Hawaii Island. Aloha, Emily. I am from Hope Services a nonprofit homeless services provider on Hawaii Island. Do you think that an affordable housing fund funded by a fixed percentage of real property tax revenue and which makes grants to nonprofit and for-profit developers to build affordable housing is a wise policy to pursue? Um, thanks for a great question there. I tend to favor policies that um, give funds to individuals rather than to home builders, because I think that that tends to lead to um, more integrated mixed income um, housing outcomes when uh, voucher holders, for example, have the choice to use their voucher in um, the location that works best for them. However, in the case of um, housing for residents who are currently homeless, I can definitely see a need in some cases for a more interventionist policy, such as a supportive housing 
um, environment that will provide more than just, just housing, but also additional services to its residents. And in that case, it, it, I think there is a role to play um, for housing specifically designed for those residents and supported with tax dollars. And I do think it makes sense for um, nonprofits particularly to um, get those resources in the case of providing housing for those who are currently homeless. Since you mentioned that the incentives should be following the individual, that sounds a lot like the existing housing choice voucher section eight program. Um, so are you suggesting that that's really the um, key to solving our affordable housing issues is an expansion of a section eight type program? I don't think Section 8 is perfect. I would like to see a program that gives voucher holders more flexibility in how they can use their voucher. So, for example, right now, um, they are given a certain amount of, of money from the voucher program that they must spend on housing, and that amount must cover their rent each month. So in, in an alternative world, voucher recipients could be allowed to spend less than their voucher and save some of that money to use on, on other needs, or they could augment their voucher with their own funds to um, live, for example, in a, in a building or in a neighborhood that they wouldn't be able to afford on their voucher alone, but that they think is, is worth the additional expense. Um, also, under the current program, a lot of landlords don't like to accept vouchers, in part um, because they come with uh, quite onerous government um, checkups and, and inspections of their um, properties that um, market rate tenants who were paying the similar amount wouldn't, um, wouldn't require. So I, I think there's there's room for reform to make the program more appealing to landlords um, in order to make it um, more broadly accessible. All right, another question from our audience. What about the social benefits of inclusionary zoning, such as low-income families and receiving better access to schools, to community facilities. Often they're able to live closer to where they work or have better access to transportation. Doesn't inclusionary zoning improve the overall health of the community in addition to folks um, who are directly benefiting by receiving these reduced priced units? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it does benefit um, anyone who isn't um, receiving the reduced priced units. Perhaps it does, um, just given the, given the benefits of a mixed income neighborhood, which I, I do believe are, are real. Um, so there are some small benefits from, from that perspective. Um, but I, I think it's um, really worth considering that if inclusionary zoning comes at the cost of making housing more expensive for everyone who isn't receiving one of those units, it's um, really exacerbating the housing affordability problems that we're facing. So um, a household who earns a low enough income to be eligible for an inclusionary zoning unit, but that doesn't get one is being harmed by, by these 
programs. Uh, whereas if we help low income people live in higher income communities with um, vouchers or another um, taxpayer supported program, we don't have to face that, that same trade-off. All right, thanks, Emily. Another question. So um, the George Mason University and Mercatus Center are famous for advocacy of pro-free market policies. Um, and often what that means is that decisions are gonna be made at the lowest possible level, the most individual and granular possible level. You're arguing for state laws to override local jurisdictions in terms of restrictiveness on land use. Is there a contradiction there? Great question. Uh, in, in some ways, um, yes, it's states setting limits on zoning restrictions is, um, is a move against local control. But it, when these rules are, are written, as in the Oregon case on eliminating much of the state's single family zoning, or in the case of California, legalizing um, accessory dwelling units for many of the state's homeowners, this isn't a move toward um, more government control of the housing market. It's a move toward property owners have, having increased rights to, um, to, to develop their, their own land. So in some ways, it's a decentralization of housing from local governments to property owners when um, when a state body comes in and sets limits on how much localities can restrict housing development. Um, just to follow up on that, how do we know that the state is right, though, to set those to, you know, to, to set free those limits? Um, why shouldn't communities be able to determine their own destiny at that county level or that, you know, at the municipality level? Yeah, um, and I, I'm not confident that if we moved to uh, an environment where all rules were, all land use regulations were passed at the state level, that we wouldn't see, um, for example, NIMBYism becoming a state level issue with, with people opposing growth to their state policymakers. But um, there are a lot of spillover effects um, when zoning is done at the local level. So if one town um, really restricts housing within its boundaries, the effect of that um, limit on housing in that town is, is affecting the, the region as a whole. Um, so localities that want to really clamp down on housing construction probably still want to be part of a region that's, that's growing um, and, you know, uh, attracting new jobs and new residents and a growing economy. They just don't want that, that new development to affect their little small piece of the region as a whole. Um, so when we move that decision making up to a higher level of government, the costs and benefits of restricting new housing supply um, both get a, a, a fairer weight at the table um, relative to making those decisions at the very local level. Great, thank you. Um, next question. You mentioned the California ADU laws. Are there rent control restrictions on those new ADU units? 
or are there other incentives such as lower property taxes in particular to serve lower income levels or are those ADUs allowed to be rented out for whatever the market can bear? Um, as far as I'm aware, um, all ADUs across California are permitted to be um, rented out at the rate that the market will bear. Um, I could be um, missing some local rent control policies that would affect that. But as, as far as I'm aware, there are there is no um, rent control or income restriction for accessory dwelling units. Um, typically those apply only to projects of a certain size that would be more than the one or perhaps two um, ADUs that homeowners are allowed to build. Great. All right. Does allowing multifamily dwellings on land that's now limited to single value, uh, single family dwellings drive up the value of land or does it drive down the value of land or does it not have any effect? This is a, a great question and, and one that's tough to answer. Um, when we think about a, uh, a piece of land in a high cost location, there's just a one small piece of land in um, an, an, an area where there is a lot of demand for housing. We know that changing that piece of land to allow denser development will increase the price of land there uh, because the option value to develop that land is now larger. Um, so people are, are willing to pay more for the opportunity to be able to build more there. When we're talking about a, a big change, like um, the Oregon example of allowing a little bit more development across the entire state, that's going to increase land prices in places where the redevelopment is viable. So if you're talking about a neighborhood in say Portland that's currently single family houses, um, but that home builders would like the opportunity to make um, duplexes if they could get the current homeowners to sell to them and be allowed to build that duplex, land there will increase in value. But if you're talking about the, the Portland exurbs, there's a chance that they could see a decrease in value as a result of this change because um, now more people can live closer into the downtown region due to the reform that allows more housing to be built there. So locations that, um, that don't um, have that, that benefit of being really close to lots of amenities may see their, um, their land prices fall. Um, but I think when we're talking about a, a very broad, small reform, like allowing duplexes or fourplexes to be built across an entire state, the changes that we're seeing in land prices are going to be small, no big swings um, in either direction will likely happen from that small broad-based reform. Um, what is your opinion of the low income housing tax credit program? So um, it's uh, not a program that I know all the ins and outs of, and it varies a lot by state how it's implemented. Um, I, I don't think that we get as much bang for our buck from a program like that that requires 
um, new below market rate housing to be provided in a, uh, in a brand new structure than we do by providing aid to households to, um, to rent housing wherever, they, wherever their voucher goes farthest for them. Um, I, I think the focus on um, creating below market rate housing in new construction just inherently means that we're not going to be able to provide um, below market rate housing for as many people as we could if, um, if we could provide more support to low income households to live in older buildings that have naturally come down in price somewhat over time, um, as, as all construction tends to do, as opposed to this the focus on creating affordable housing in brand new construction. So, you know, one of the themes that we see here in Hawaii, and we've talked around it for, um, you know, a lot today, is this idea that on the one hand, you know, we might think that communities want economic growth, job growth, access to affordable housing. And certainly, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way in the community. There seem to be other people who would say, you know what, um, we already as humans have too great an impact on the environment. Um, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. We need to um, preserve our neighborhoods so that the value does not go up, which might increase property taxes on those who can afford it the least. We don't want property values to go down because that would hurt these people's net worth even more. Um, we want to preserve what's natural and special and beautiful about Hawaii. And that means the pristine forests, the taro fields, the historic agriculture that has sustained the economy in the past. And what we don't need are more tall buildings, more noise, more traffic, more crime, more congestion, more outsiders coming in. Um, I, I think in some ways that, that those two valid points of view um, and the conflict between them is underlying this entire debate. Um, do you see a resolution to that fundamental conflict? And if so, what could that look like? Yeah, um, I, I certainly myself am, am concerned about the environmental impacts of, of new construction. Um, I think it's always important to not think about a new development in isolation. So um, the, the outcome of blocking a new 100 unit apartment building in a certain location doesn't mean that those 100 households who would have lived there cease to exist. It means that they're going to live somewhere else. Um, so allowing a, um, more density in, in areas that are already developed comes with um, the potential um, benefits of reducing new greenfield development in, um, for example, in a pristine forest that is um, land, you know, very well worth preserving as it is. Um, so I think that um, in some cases, um, those who talk about blocking development as a pro-environmental move are thinking um, just about that one development in isolation rather than the effect of density restrictions across the country 
that um, don't, you know, reduce our, our population or um, the, the number of people who need housing. It just leads to a different type of housing that is in general, um, has a, a larger environmental footprint and comes with more environmental costs than allowing an infill development would have. All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of today's program. Um, let's thank our presenter, Emily Hamilton, who's joining us all the way from Virginia. Um, we encourage you to visit faithactionhawaii.org to get involved with the great work of our partner, Faith Action for Community Equity. To contact me, Stanley Chang, you can email senchang at capital.hawaii.gov or find me on Facebook. Have a great day, everyone, and please stay safe and healthy in this pandemic. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. On behalf of Faith Action for Community Equity and me, Stanley Chang, thank you for being part of the solution to this crisis.